Appreciate everyone's presence with us this evening. Appreciate the opportunity again to lead your minds in a study of God's Word. That study this evening is on the topic of the doctrine on doctrine. And to focus our minds a little bit further, we have a question that is helps us maybe to center our thoughts, and that is, is doctrine important or irrelevant? By way of introduction, Roger Chambers, back in 1985, to the Florida Christian Convention, the National Missionary Convention, said doctrine is an embarrassed intruder in many modern congregations, barely tolerated. It covers on the back pew, The territory around the pulpit has long since been claimed by commanding personality, practical mysticism, professional music, and pop psychology. Did you notice that was in 1985? And if he acknowledged that in 1985, matters have only gotten worse in the 45 years since... 35 years, I guess, since that, that quote. What is doctrine? What is this that has become such an embarrassment to many churches? Well, the idea of doctrine, at least in the English language, it is a particular principle or a position or policy taught or advocated as of a religion or government. We would think about in In history, we think about the Monroe Doctrine. It was a principle or a policy that was engaged in by our government. If you think about it religiously, we're thinking about Catholic doctrines as one of the things, one of the definitions or one of the examples that was given by this particular dictionary. Something that is taught, the teachings collectively, especially in religious contexts a body or system of teachings relating to a particular sub, uh, subject. In other words, that's the doctrine, the teaching of the Catholic Church. And so that identifies that teaching, that, that there's something specific about that. And it's not really any different as when we come to the New Testament. And we find that the word that we have our word doctrine translated from is a Greek word that means teaching. That which is taught, doctrine. Zodiati said the thing that taught, instruction, precept, or doctrine. This raises a question when we think about the fact that so many people want to shove doctrine into the corner of the Lord's church. And why Mr. Chambers looked at that and said doctrine is kind of an embarrassed, we, we just, we don't really want it to be recognized that we hold or maintain or espouse any certain doctrine. So it raises the question then is why contend that doctrine is irrelevant? Why why make that as a position? Why don't you think about it from the standpoint at, at least the way that I look at this as this is going to be my approach to this is What distinguishes one church from another? In fact, what has always distinguished one church from another? It has always been what they teach. You are a Baptist because of what they teach, because of Baptist doctrine. 
A Methodist is a Methodist because of a particular doctrine. There's something that identifies that denomination, something that identifies this denomination, and what identifies them is what they think or what they believe or what they teach. And so what distinguishes then one church from another has always been what they teach. Oh, they don't believe that over there. And so they're different from us, different teaching. But if doctrine doesn't matter, and we take that out of the equation, then I want you to consider the fact that what that means is that I can now attend the church of my choice. Now that, you know, years ago, that was a slogan. It's not new so much now. Because living in the postmodernistic society that, that we live in, and your truth isn't my truth, and your way isn't my way, we don't really seem to we don't seem to acknowledge that slogan anymore. But years ago it used to be attend the church of your choice. And you would hear evangelists that would proclaim a message and say, Now say this prayer, and now that you're saved, now go attend the church of, of your choice. And in the world in which we live in, and especially the religious climate, if doctrine doesn't matter, then I can attend the church of my choice. And guess the basis upon which I'm going to make that choice? Well, it's going to be what programs they offer. Probably had, uh, I'm sure Daryl's had messages on the church uh, answering machine. And they want to know, what children's programs do you have? What recovery programs do you have for divorcees? Uh, what marriage programs do you have? I want to know what programs you have because I'm making a choice of my church that I'm going to go to based upon the programs. Or what kind of community outreach do you have? How do you go out into the community and, and have these outreach? What kind of facilities do you have? And when that becomes the standard, then guess what? If I choose to go to this particular church because of that program that they have or that particular community outreach, then you can't disapprove my choice because it was a personal choice that I selected. I like that program. That appeals to me. And so someone can't say, well, you shouldn't go over there. Well, why can't I go over there? Because that's what I like. That appeals to me. It's a personal thing. And so as a result of that, whether intentional or not, what we have done is, and I think it's probably more intentional than not, what we have done is, if we remove doctrine, if we remove the one objective standard upon which all must agree, then I can do whatever I want to do. I can go to whatever church I want to go to. And there's no basis upon which anyone could say, well, you shouldn't do that, or you shouldn't go there, or you shouldn't attend that congregation. And so if we can get doctrine out of the picture, we can remove doctrine and remove what is taught and remove the fact that there is an objective standard and everybody can go and attend whatever church they select. Let me give you an example of this thinking. On the Sojourner's website, sojo.net, there is this article by Aaron Taylor. And he makes a statement. He says, I'm not saying that doctrine isn't important. I'm just wondering how we arrived at the place where we think that we're saved through doctrine and not saved through Jesus. Do you notice something there? 
We're saved by Jesus and not by doctrine. Let me suggest something to you. That's a false dichotomy. A dichotomy is the idea of a, and I've got the definition there, is the division into two mutually exclusive opposed or contradictory groups. It's Jesus or doctrine is what we're told. But is this really an either-or issue? Is it really, well, we're saved by Jesus, not by doctrine. Jesus is over here, doctrine is over here, and so we're saved by Jesus, not by doctrine. These things are mutually exclusive. They don't go and belong together. I want you to consider, isn't saved by Jesus a doctrinal statement? So, does that doctrine not matter? Or does that doctrine matter? In reality, it is arbitrarily selecting which doctrine is the least offensive and most widely accepted in order to produce, in their minds, unity. Sometimes people will say, oh, well, I don't know that Sojourner's website. Do you pull that like off in the far reaches of some Google search that was like, a hundred pages down? Are you just creating a straw man here that, that nobody has uh, believes in, nobody thinks that way, and you're just going to beat the stuffing out of that and yet and like, act like that you've done something? Well, nobody thinks that way. Nobody believes that, really. Rick Warren, I'm sure you've heard of the book The Purpose Driven Life. I'm sure you've heard of that book. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 90 weeks. 18 million copies were sold in the year 2008. 32 million copies were sold in, by 2012. Last year, 50 million copies in more than 85 languages were sold. And everybody knows about the purpose. This was revolutionary in the minds of many individuals. This was individuals that you would talk to in your community and they'd say, have you read The Purpose Driven Life? You need to read this. This, will, this is revolutionary. You need to understand what's being said in this book. You need to have this. And so, no, this isn't an idea that's just in the far corners of somewhere that nobody has any notion about what's going on. The book had 40 chapters and it was divided into six major divisions. What on earth am I here for? Was the question that he was asking. So he said, here's what you're here for. Purpose one, you are planned for God's pleasure, Christian worship. Two, you are formed for God's family, Christian church. Three, you are created to become like Christ, discipleship. Four, you are shaped for serving God, Christian ministry. And five, you were made for a mission, Christian mission. Now, I want you to notice what Mr. Warren in his book says about this very thing that we're talking about. He, <clears throat> he said, one day you will stand before God and He will do an audit of your life, final exam, before you enter eternity. The Bible says, remember, each of us will stand personally before the judgment seat of God. Yes, each of us will have to give a personal account to God. Fortunately, God wants us to pass this test. 
So he's given us the questions in advance. From the Bible, we can surmise that God will ask us two crucial questions. First, what did you do with my son Jesus Christ? God won't ask about your religious background or doctrinal views. The only thing that will matter is, did you accept what Jesus did for you and did you learn to love and trust him? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Second, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with your life? All the gifts, talents, opportunities, energy, relationships, and resources God gave you. Did you spend them on yourself or did you use them for the purposes God made you for? Preparing you for these two questions is the goal of this book. Now, in relation to our study this evening, did you catch something in that quote? God won't ask you about your background and about your doctrinal views. God won't ask you about that. God didn't care about that. And so God's not preparing you for that because God's not going to ask you about that. And when you consider the impact of this book in the lives of many individuals, this tells us we have to deal with the fact and the importance of doctrine because many individuals have read this and they have said, and they have read that word and that sentence and they've said, God won't ask about your religious background or doctrinal views. God won't care what you believe. But isn't that doctrine? See, it, for me, it gets ridiculous. As soon as someone says that doctrine doesn't matter, but then the doctrine of doctrine doesn't matter is a doctrine. That, that's, that's what you're teaching. And if you say, well, doctrine doesn't matter, but this matters, but that is doctrine. And you seem to meet yourself coming. But I will agree with something that Mr. Warren did say. And that is, he says, from the Bible we can surmise. And I think that's a good place to start. Now, he has already told us what he has surmised from the Bible. And he didn't give us any scriptures. He didn't supply us any proof. We're just supposed to believe on the basis of his research that we can surmise this, because that's what he has surmised. But how about we do our own research? What do we find in the Bible in reference to this matter of doctrine? Is doctrine seen in the Bible as important or is, is it seen as irrelevant? Is it important as to what we teach or is that really irrelevant? Now, we need to think about this. When we think about this matter of doesn't matter what we teach, if it doesn't matter, then any Doctrine must be accepted, and none must be excluded. Any doctrine must be accepted. Because the one doctrine that I choose to exclude negates my proposition. Because I've said doctrine doesn't matter. So as soon as I make that statement, that means that I can't negate or I can't exclude any doctrine because it doesn't really matter. And the moment that I say, well, that should be excluded, the moment that I say that, I've just now proven I don't believe my own proposition. I've just now proven that doctrine actually does matter. 
And all that it takes is just one. However radical, however extreme that doctrine might be, I've got to allow it. Because I've made the statement that doctrine doesn't matter. And however radical and however extreme that might be, if I say, well, now that's got to be excluded, then I've got to abandon my position and my proposition. Because to that extent, doctrine does matter. Well, that's a good place to start. Were there some doctrines in the Word of God? And do we find as we're looking at the Bible, I mean, this is what Mr. Warren has said. He said, from the Bible we can surmise. Well, we're going to see what we can surmise from the Bible. And so we ask this beginning question. Were some doctrines too radical or too extreme? Take your Bibles to Second John. We'll be there a couple of three times in our study this evening. Second John, beginning in verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God, and the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Did you notice there that John says anyone who goes too far. There says that is to go before, to proceed, to go forward in a bad sense, to go further than what is right. Loanita in their lexicon says that it is to go beyond the established bounds of teaching or instruction with the implication of failure to obey properly. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament said in 2 John 9, going astray is a suggested alternative, but perhaps the opponents thought of themselves as go-aheads or progressives. Now, if doctrine doesn't matter, then one can never go too far because it doesn't matter. Doctrine doesn't matter. What is taught doesn't matter. There would be no such thing as going too far. And yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Exceed, Thayer says, is a proposition or preposition metaphorically of the measure or degree exceeded. I can go beyond where I should be going. Well, this raises another question. If I can go beyond, if I can go too far, then that looks like doctrine matters. And if that's the case, that must mean where I go, and if I go beyond, that must mean when I get there, I'm involved in a doctrine that must be excluded because I've gone too far with it. And so the question then is, were there some doctrines in the New Testament that we were told were to be excluded? Because if we exclude one, that's all it can... I've got three up there, but all we've got to do is find one. If we can find one instance where a doctrine was excluded, then the matter of doctrine mattering, it matters. Just takes one. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus warned his... Jesus himself warned his apostles about doctrine. 
Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, Well, he said that because he didn't bring any bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I speak to you concerning, not concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In the Lord's mind, their teaching was a problem. Their doctrine was a problem. Beware of their teaching, their doctrine. It sounded like doctrine mattered to the Lord. Look in Revelation chapter 2. And we see the Lord again now addressing, many years later, we see Him addressing a church that's got some doctrinal problems. The church Pergamon says, But I have a few things against you because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now remember, as you look at this, he has praised them for some things. And he says, I, I know where you dwell. I know what you've done. I know who you've lost. And I, I recognize that. That's praiseworthy. But I have this against you. And what he had against them was that they were allowing certain individuals to teach certain doctrines. The teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit acts of immorality. And you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Didn't Jesus know that doctrine didn't matter? That doctrine was irrelevant? You can believe whatever you wanted to believe. And yet when he writes to this church, he says, you have done this and you've done wonderfully and I know where you are. I know that you're in a difficult situation. I know that you've lost Antipas and there's a martyr. But I've got this against you. You are allowing doctrine to be taught. That's a problem. Hmm. Sounds like doctrine mattered. You know, if it doesn't matter, then why were specific doctrines condemned in the Bible? In Acts chapter 15, in verses 1 and 2, there is, they come up to Antioch, some from, they claim to be from James in the city of Jerusalem, in the church in Jerusalem. And they came up to where Paul was at in Antioch, and they started making this claim, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now I want you to go to Acts chapter 15. Now that's the doctrine that was being taught. Let's see how that was received. Verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, we would have some denominational friends, and fortunately we'd even have some brethren that would say, well, that was a waste of time. Why are you debating stuff that doesn't matter? Why are you debating over doctrine? And yet they debated that. That Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. You know, as you think about this, in reality, if doctrine didn't matter, 
then we would never have Acts chapter 15 in our Bibles. Because this is a discussion as to what's our stand on circumcision. What's our stand on Gentiles coming in? Do we have them circumcised or not? Should we make them be circumcised in order to be saved? What's our teaching on this? What's our doctrine on this? If doctrine didn't matter, there'd be no chapter 15. And Acts would be 27 chapters instead of 28. But notice that wasn't the only place. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Paul was concerned for the church in Colossae because they were accepting some things that weren't of benefit to them. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you're living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and virtue in the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Why are you accepting these things? Why is it that Paul singles out a couple of men in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18, and he singles them out because of the damage that they're doing by the doctrine that they're teaching? Why else single these men out? In fact, he calls it in verse 16, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. They've gone astray. They're teaching that which is not the truth. If doctrine doesn't matter, then why were specific doctrines condemned? It doesn't matter. Why were some doctrines described as sound? What is that word sound? Let me give you these illustrations here. 1 Timothy, we're not going to read them, but 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. 2 Timothy, we have sound teaching. 2 Timothy 1, 13, we've got sound words. 2 Timothy 4, 3, sound doctrine, as well as in Titus 1, 9 and Titus 2, 1. What does it mean to be sound? Loanita says it's to be correct in one's views. That's the idea of sound with the implication of such a state being positively valued. That means to be correct, to be sound, to be accurate. So the audience said it's metaphorically a person's to be sound in the faith, meaning firm, pure in respect to Christian doctrine and life. Of doctrine, meaning sound doctrine, true, pure, and uncorrupted. Brethren, this distinction would not exist if doctrine didn't matter. There'd be no such thing as sound doctrine. Because if doctrine didn't matter, it would just be doctrine. There'd be no distinguishing of or identifying it as sound or on the opposite end of the spectrum. There'd be no identifying it as strange. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, As I urge you upon the departure of Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange Doctrines. Oh, Paul, don't you know doctrine doesn't matter? Why are you telling Timothy to tell others to be careful not to teach that? Because doctrine doesn't matter. They can teach whatever. It's irrelevant. Doctrine is irrelevant. And yet Paul warns Timothy, you need to go and you need to warn those in Ephesus not to teach strange doctrines, doctrines that are different. Deviating from the truth is the idea. 
in that passage. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange doctrines. Why do we have that as a warning? If doctrine didn't matter, why warn Christians to don't be involved and don't get sucked into, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings? It wouldn't matter if they got carried away by that, if doctrine didn't matter. The idea of strange is foreign, not of one's family, metaphorically used to strange doctrines foreign to the Christian faith. This distinction wouldn't exist if doctrine didn't matter. If it doesn't matter, then no one would be condemned for what they taught. If doctrine didn't matter, you could teach whatever you wanted to teach. It didn't matter how radical, it didn't matter how strange. It couldn't be excluded. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be classified as sound or strange. It wouldn't, be a, it wouldn't be fitting into a category because it, doctrine wouldn't matter. And so if you taught something that maybe was different from everyone else, it would just be, well, it's just another doctrine. It really wouldn't matter. And yet we find men being condemned. Think about that. No one would ever be called a false teacher. I mean, by virtue of calling someone a false teacher implies there are true teachers. And so this designation wouldn't exist. However radical the doctrine might be, I couldn't condemn the man who taught it. Why would I if doctrine didn't matter? There would be no need for me to condemn someone in an area that didn't matter anyway. So this raises the question. Like, okay, well, that's the principle. I get that. No, there would be no. If doctrine doesn't matter, there would be no condemnation. No one would be condemned for what they taught. So then were some individuals labeled as false teachers in the New Testament? In Revelation chapter 2, church in Thyatira, Jezebel is singled out. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, a reference to the brethren that came from Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, 1 and 2, those brethren were singled out as brethren that were teaching false. Peter acknowledges that those that were coming in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, that they were men who were bringing in destructive heresies. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, in fact, the entire chapter. Here again, if it didn't matter... There'd be no labeling of individuals as false teachers. And now, we're, now we don't have Acts 15. And we can add to that list of passages that we don't have in God's Word. We can add to that list now the entire second chapter of Peter. In fact, we can also add to that list the entire book of Jude. We wouldn't have that either. If doctrine didn't matter because all of those books and those chapters are dealing with Men who are teaching that which is false, they need to be dealt with. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Peter's point seems to be, at least at the very beginning of that, he says, but false, po- uh, uh, false prophets also arose among the people. Hey, this has been a problem for years, Peter says. Don't, don't think, I mean, he's going to address it a little bit. He's already addressed, you know, if you, you have this fiery trial, don't think that something strange is happening to you. And that, that's the concept. We see this now. 
They thought that in the first book. Don't think it's strange that you're suffering or some, that this fiery ordeal of affliction is happening. Don't think it as if it's something strange happening to you. Okay, well, here's another thing that, that you don't need to think is strange happening. The fact of false prophets coming in. Are we the only ones having to deal with this? Peter said there, there have always been men who would stand up and preach that which was false. Moses had to deal with that. Men who stood up and proclaimed that which was false. All God's people all down through time have had to deal with people who would stand up and proclaim something that was false. Why would Moses in Deuteronomy say, hey, you need to make sure that when someone gets up and says this is going to happen, when it doesn't happen, then you know that guy is a what? You know that guy's a false prophet. It's always been a problem. And so Peter says, look, when the problem returns, don't be shocked that there would be people who would come in and try to teach and teach it secretly and teach things that will destroy and teach things that's denying the very master that's bought you and see these things as what they are, men who are bringing about destruction. But if doctrine didn't matter, why were these individuals labeled and given this label of false teacher? If it doesn't matter, why are we given warnings about false teachers? What would it matter? In Matthew chapter 7, when our Lord is talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and near the end of the sermon when he is warning his disciples about false prophets, he says, look, they're slick. And you need to recognize that they're going to come in and they're going to look like they're true, but I'm telling you they're false. Beware the false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Sometimes how we determine if something is true or false is we look at the fruit of that. Where will this lead? That's not going to be a doctrine of truth if it leads to that which takes us away from the Father. But notice in Acts chapter 20, when Paul stops and calls the elders of Ephesus to him at Miletus, And he says, and he gives a warning, these aren't new Christians, these aren't naive Christians, these are men who are elders, leaders in the church at Ephesus. And yet he tells them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now my question is, We've got the image of a shepherd over a flock. And just from our study of God's word, we recognize that what a shepherd did in, that, in those times, they led the flock, but they also protected the flock. Because sheep are prone to being attacked by wolves. And so there would be and there would be animals that would come and that would attack the sheep. And so the shepherd would have his staff that was used both to help him walk 
and all of the miles that he would walk would help him guide the sheep, but would also help him protect the sheep. And so this is the image that Paul lays out. You brethren are shepherds. You brethren have to be on guard because your flock is going to be attacked. But attacked by what? I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Well, there's the image. Here's a flock of sheep on a hillside, and here's a wolf coming in for the kill. But that's the literal image. What's the figurative application here? Notice what, he's, what these men are to be guarding the flock against. Verse 30, And from your, among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. What is it that they are protecting the flock from? The wrong doctrine. From someone who would come in and speak and teach perversity. This is what they're guarding against. If doctrine didn't matter, why is Paul telling these elders to get ready for battle? Why is he telling them to get ready for guarding their flocks? Why does he put it in this imagery of a sheep helpless and wolves coming in and attacking? If doctrine didn't matter, then why does he get these men ready for a battle that is an irrelevant battle to begin with? And then look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The idea of heresy is the content of teaching which is not true, Loanita says, false teaching, untrue doctrine, heresy. It's destructible. That sounds like it matters, doesn't it? There's a, there's a consequence to believing that. Passively, it means, Thayer says, it's perishing, ruin, and destruction. And then their maligning is to speak evil and to be reviled. You know, if it doesn't matter, then why were there warnings given about false teachers? If it doesn't matter, why was action against these false teachers exhorted? We are told in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, turn away from them. Well, why would we turn away from them? Why aren't we welcoming them? What does it matter? If doctrine doesn't matter, why are we having to turn from them? If doctrine doesn't matter, why are we refuting those who contradict? a waste of time. The idea of refuting the New Testament was to convict, to prove one in the wrong and thus to shame it. Why are we doing that if doctrine doesn't matter? Well, that brother's in the wrong. He's got the wrong doctrine. Well, you know, doctrine doesn't matter, Adonis. Why are you trying to convict him? Well, if I'm trying to convict him, it sounds like doctrine does matter. In 2 John 9, or 2 John 9 through 11, notice that John says, Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Why? Because he's teaching what is false. And you will be convicted as he. If it doesn't matter, then one's doctrine would have no impact upon their faith or fellowship with God. Remember that dichotomy that we laid out a while ago? It's Jesus or doctrine. When do we get to the point, Austin Taylor said, when do we get to the point wherein we think that we're saved by doctrine and not by Jesus. It's, it's either this or that. It's an either-or situation. And so if that's the case, 
if that's really the way that this is laid out in, in the Bible, then since doctrine and faith or fellowship are mutually exclusive, one would never affect the other, right? One's doctrine would never have an impact on one's faith. One's doctrine would never have an impact on one's fellowship with God because it's an irrelevant thing. However radical the doctrine might be, it would not affect my faith and it would not affect my fellowship with God. If doctrine doesn't matter, why are some considered as fallen or gone astray because of what they taught? Doctrine doesn't matter. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 Notice that Paul writes to Timothy, and we have a lot of these warnings in the book of Timothy, wherein it's to an evangelist to warn him about teaching. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as well as, a, as with a branding iron. Men who for... Now here, here's the doctrines. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from, from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctioned by means of the word of God. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. How did they fall away? They paid attention to the wrong doctrine. Doctrines of demons. What doctrines were that? Forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods. There were specific doctrines that people paid attention to, and as a result of their paying attention to that, they fell away from the faith. Well, wait a minute, I thought these things were mutually exclusive. Not here. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. But avoid worldly and empty chatter. For it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, we've already read this passage, but notice as we emphasize something different. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. So, these are men who have gone astray. Their doctrine is the resurrection has already taken place. But will that matter? Notice the next phrase. And they upset the faith of some. That literally means to turn over. Sounds like it matters, doesn't it? If doctrine doesn't matter, then how did believing in the wrong doctrine cause one's faith to be overturned? 2 Timothy 2 and verse 18. If doctrine doesn't matter, then how did not abiding in the doctrine of Christ cause one to lose fellowship with God? 2 John verse 9. Passages that we've already read. Doesn't this explain why in the Bible we find admonitions to young evangelists for the need to accurately handle the word of truth? What a ridiculous admonition if doctrine didn't matter. Isn't this the reason why we find in God's Word the need to pay close attention to your teaching? Paul warns Timothy. Pay close attention and make sure you're teaching the truth. Why were these brethren who were the recipients of the first gospel sermon, why were they continually devoting themselves to the apostles' 
doctrine. Why? If doctrine didn't matter. Ah, but if doctrine matters, well, now I can see why someone would need to make sure they handle the word of truth correctly because the implications are someone's faith might be lost. Someone's fellowship with God might be severed. Now I can see why they continually devoted themselves to that doctrine because they wanted to make sure their faith was strong and their fellowship remained. So we've done what Mr. Warren has asked us to do. We have, from the Bible, tried to surmise what the Bible says. And I recognize that in a way, many of this is kind of redundant. And I recognize that I'm probably preaching to the choir in reference to this, because I'm thinking that we're all in agreement on the fact that we understand that doctrine matters. But I wanted us to look at this from the standpoint of, as someone says, well, well, doctrine doesn't matter. Well, he's told us from the Bible. And so we're using the source he's asked us to go to. And we're using the source that he said he surmised doctrine doesn't matter. But we've gone to the Bible and we've given you the scriptures. And we've looked at the principles. And we've looked at it every way possible to demonstrate the fact that every way you look at this, we cannot surmise the same thing that he surmised. And so when we ask the question, well, what is the doctrine on doctrine? We come out with something very different than what Mr. Warren did. We come out with doctrine is important and it matters what is taught. The application then for you and I needs to be, if it matters what I believe, if it matters what I teach, if what I believe and what I teach has an impact on my faith and my fellowship with God, then I need to get serious about studying the Word of God. I need to make sure that what I believe isn't what I believe because that's what I've always believed. Because that's what mom and dad believed. Because that's what the church believes where I attend. Or because of someone that I respect greatly, that's what they believe and I can't believe that they would be wrong. And so if my faith depends upon that and my fellowship depends upon that, then I better know why I believe what I believe and I better do what the Bereans did and search the scriptures daily to see whether these things that I believe are true found in God's Word. I really, on that case, should do what Mr. Warren did. From the Bible, I need to surmise that I need to be spending more time meditating upon the Word of God. If you're here this evening, your life is not what it needs to be, then doctrine is important. What you believe is important. What you accept is important. Make sure that what you are accepting is the truth. If there's something that we can do to help you make your life right, let us know. Come forward. Well, together we stand and while we sing.